Well, my first online Blazor workshop was a huge success, and the next one is scheduled for Monday, November 25th. In one day, we'll build a server-side Blazor PWA app, complete with Blazor components, EF Core, API controllers, SignalR, ASP.NET Core identity, JavaScript interop, and user management using the free Visual Studio 2019 Community Edition and .NET Core 3. And hey, if you can't make the workshop, you can buy the video and take the course on your own time as if you were right there. Go to blazor.appvnext.com to sign up or purchase the video. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And uh, we're home from Poland. Yes, we are, but we haven't published any of the Polish shows yet. We're That's interleaving right. just for fun. That's right. Yeah. So uh, we had three shows that we recorded there, and those are coming up in the next few weeks. And uh, this is our old friend, Julie Lerman. We're going to be talking about EF Core. How are you, my friend? How was your flight home? Uh, uneventful. You know, it's like the airplane was good and... Uh... But I, you know, I rarely get my butt kicked by jet lag. Rarely. But you saw me as kicked as I've ever been. Oh, my God, yes. Yeah. I mean, literally. And it's just, I flew from Australia through Vancouver to Poland. And apparently my body went, dude. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, I think it was like I, 3 o'clock in the afternoon. We lost contact with you. And yeah. we figured, oh, well, he's either really busy or just really face planted. Yeah. Turns and, out and it was and I never, I was not light a single night the whole time we were there. Wow. So, Jeez. And now I'm back home, which is better, but it still takes a while to sort of shake this off. So, yeah, yeah I got myself into an interesting time zone state. That was five weeks of travel in five or six different time zones. And uh, yeah. Okay. There's a line. Yeah. In my 50s, there is a line. Well, it was a six-hour difference for me. I slept on yeah. the plane coming home and managed nice. to sleep full two full nights in a row so you're feeling good i'm feeling okay let's just hope it doesn't you know come back in a in a day or two and there's always that third day burn right third day burn that's right yeah <laughs> <laughs> oh well anyway as i said julie lerman our friend is here but uh before we get to talk to her let's roll the crazy music for a thing called better know a framework awesome <laughs> All right, man, what do you got? All right, I know if, if you, and Julie, you can uh, chime in here too if you want, because you might know about this, but Microsoft has this has had this data exploration tool in, in-house called Sandance, mm -hmm. and they open-sourced it on October 10th. Nice. And I tweeted about this. Yeah, that's right, Microsoft Research. So it, it's a system for exploring and presenting data using what they call unit visualization. So instead of aggregating data and showing the resulting sums as bar charts or other reduced uh, numbers, Sandance shows every single row of a data set for data sets up to 500,000 rows. What? Wow. It, and it represents each of those rows as a mark that can be colored and organized in the different areas on the screen. And then, of course, it's 3D, so you can spin it around and zoom it and get in there and actually see what it looks like. It's it's pretty cool. Yeah, the magic of this thing is that it can handle so many points of data and still have fast rendering. Right. I w I'd like to see those link statements, wouldn't you, <laughs> Julie? 
No. No. <laughs> He's not when somebody says, can you debug it for me? Right. No. No, I'm, I'm looking at this. Cool. I, I'm, I, I think I brought this up on Run As Radio, actually, because it has a Power BI extension. So it's sort of falling into the main analytics tools. Now. Yeah, so yeah. It's, it's very cool. Oh, and hey, I have another um, thing to report. You didn't mm-hmm. go out to dinner with us the last night because uh, you were working on something. But yep. uh, our friend Jeffrey Snover, you know, PowerShell architect, went out mm-hmm. with us. And he looks at me across the table and he says, hey, you did that keto thing, right? And I said, yeah. He says, well, I tried it and it was hard for me, but I found intermittent fasting worked and I lost 80 pounds. I'm like, yeah. you know, I thought you looked a little smaller than usual. <laughs> yes. So he's like, do you know, you know, and he's naming off all these people who I've worked with. and Right. Yeah, on Two yeah. Keto Dudes. Absolutely. And so uh, he's going to come on Two Keto Dudes and just sort of geek out with us because he's, cool. he's really into the science. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And he's learned a lot and, and has a, a great story to tell. So it just so happens that he knows who Dave Feldman is, who's a software developer who does all sorts of research into lipids. And his protege, Siobhan Huggins, is a uh, is an IT person who uses PowerShell all the time and was like, you're having dinner with Jeffrey Snover? Oh, my God. <laughs> right? And so, but it, they're all part of the story, and he knows who Dave is. So sure. we're all going to be on the show together and, and geek uh, out. That'll be fun. Isn't that cool? Yeah, it's good I stuff. I love it when worlds collide. Anyway, that's that's what I got. What you got? Who's talking to us? Grab the Comment Office Show 1481, the one we did back in October of 2017, entirely too long ago, with one mm. Julie Lerman. This was a show that we recorded at ProgNet in London. Oh, yeah. Which I think oh, we were there yeah. in like the September, so it was published after that, about any framework core two. So, yeah. it's, I mean, it's been a couple of years, right? Right, right. Uh, probably too long, kind of a mistake on my part. And uh, the comment actually is from uh, uh, Brian Menagi, who didn't actually comment so much on EF Core 2, which it's got its own issues, Mm -hmm. but rather this comment that I made. He said, it's a great episode as always. However, I take exception to something Richard said, that normalization is about disk space. Disk space may be an ancillary benefit, but by no means is that a reason to normalize. Elimination of data redundancy is why we normalize. Redundant data redundancy. Yeah. Which makes me, you know, my automatic reaction is, so what data did you think was redundant exactly? Mm-hmm. Because an awful lot of data isn't actually redundant. You can Not make copy, you know, you can try and unify copies of it, but it's often different. My, my favorite example is address. Yeah. Because people move. Well, you are thinking relationally. And so yes. if you have documents where there's a lot of duplication of data, possibly, that could be a problem. Well, and the only problem is, is it, is it duplicate data per se? It maybe happens to be the same, mm-hmm. but if it's two different orders on two different days that happen to be the same address. True. They're actually discrete pieces of information. Yeah. Yes. Even though they at, might be exactly. At that time, at that order, that address was relevant. Even though they may be exactly the same. Exactly. And, that, you know, a lot of that, um, we, I wonder if we were talking about domain-driven design ideas and how mm-hmm. things um features of EF core, you know, each, each version kind of makes mapping domain driven design even easier. And that's such a perfect example that you just mentioned, like mm-hmm. persisting the address for that order. 
right? Right. Because the, you know, the person's home address or whatever, whatever that address is, that could change and then you lose it. Right. Yeah. So yes. we just persist it and and I or, or you build an even more elaborate tr- structure where you keep multiple addresses for each person, try and figure out which is the cr- current one, and then you're thinking back. Like the, what's crazy about this whole idea, really, is that if it we have the disk space, so that doesn't matter. And I don't believe that any data is redundant. Just keep copies of everything. It's actually the truth. You know, mm-hmm. I, I come from a finance background where we cared about the journal, and the journal was the truth at the time. That was more important than anything else. Right. Also, if you think about what's going on with microservices architectures, I wasn't looking for an opportunity to mention microservices, but you know (laughs) that that um, those ideas are you know you would have a different database for each microservice. So imagine the duplication there. But then bring in also event sourcing, right? You're tracking the events, not the data, so you could rebuild the you know, whichever view of your data structures and database you want on the fly. Right. So just all kinds of different perspectives. And then let's throw in performance. It's like, why don't we just take the data that the customer's given us and store it and let them go about their business? If we want to then return that into a more relational model, we can do it asynchronous to the the customer Mm. and vice versa. If you have a copy of the truth, if you need to fetch the copy of the truth, you can go fetch the copy of the truth. You don't have to compose it. Right. And it's a lot faster. You don't have to navigate and pull this and right. go there and yeah, do all this acrobatics. 25 joins. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah. I just think it's a, it's kind of an obsolete concept and, uh, and it's interesting to press against that. But it, I totally respect, you know, Brian coming out, he's probably got lots of database experience. And it's one of those things where it's like, this is how you were taught. This is what you fundamentally believe. You know, I, I, I do talks where I sort of get into this. What are your sacred cows? You know, what Mark, Mark Twain once said, which is, it's not what you know, it's what you know ain't so, <laughs> yeah. right? And I, and the way I pull it up in, a, in the least offensive way possible, and I hope I'm not offending you, Brian, at all, but good, is I show a Mercator map, Mercator projection map, which is from the 1500s. Right. And it's a European-centric navigation map. Yeah. And I compare it to a Peter's projection map, which actually keeps the area of all the land masses correct. So mm. suddenly Europe's much smaller and Africa's much bigger and Greenland's tiny, you know, those kinds of things. But we all were taught in school on the Mercator map. It's what feels right. Yeah. It just happens to be wrong. So, uh, and I've, I'm, I'm getting this place on, as we've gotten into better storage mechanisms and more versatility around this, I sort of said, like, I was taught third normal form decades ago mm. by CJ date. <laughs> and so uh, it's been a real struggle to say, this is my instinct. And I think it's wrong. Yeah. Anyway, I'm happy to have the debate and uh, always a, a good point. And admittedly, that comment was two years ago, Brian, maybe your mind's already been changed. But either way, a copy of Music to Code By is on its way to you. And if you'd like a copy of Music to Code By, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or in any of the social medias we publish every show to Facebook. And if you comment there, we read it on the show, we'll send you a copy of Music to Code By. And definitely follow us on Twitter. He's at Rich Campbell. I'm at Carl Franklin. Send us a tweet. And don't worry about all them joins. We'll decompose it when we get it. It's okay. <laughs> don't worry Just about them joins. store the object. Store the object. <laughs> Now we're going to be talking about relational data, right? That's it. <laughs> right. Although not totally, not fully. Well, let, so. me, let me give you a proper 
introduction, Julie. Uh, Julie is a Microsoft Regional Director and a longtime Microsoft MVP. Um, she makes her living as a mentor and consultant to software teams around the world. And you can find her presenting on entity framework, domain-driven design, and other topics at user groups and conferences around the world. I know. I've seen her there. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Julie blogs at thedatafarm.com slash blog. She's the author of the highly acclaimed Programming Entity Framework books, the MSDN Magazine Data Points column, well, used to be. Oh, boo-hoo. I know, boo-hoo. <laughs> yeah, and sad. all sorts of videos on Pluralsight.com. You can follow her on Twitter, at Julie Lerman. And welcome back, Julie. It's a pleasure hello, to have hello. you back on. Thank you for not repeating our old friend, Julie Lerman. Well, you know. <laughs> just had, I didn't had say another were, birthday. So, I didn't say you were know. old. I said our friendship has, has been long and enduring. That is That's true. What I meant. That is true. So um, should we talk about MSDN Magazine for those of who, uh, those listeners who didn't know why we stopped and went, oh. Sure. Well, November, this November 2019 is the last issue. Um, so, yeah. and I've been writing the data points column for, I would say about 10 years. Mm, so wow. it's been an amazing inspiration. Uh, yeah. There's been so many columns I've written where I'd maybe heard about something I was curious about. And there was some, as long as there was some connection to data, it gave me an excuse to really dig in because, you know, teaching something, being able to explain it to people really forces you to understand it. Right. So, you know, instead of just being the entity framework column month after month after month, like, yeah. you know, the thing people expect, I, I got to write about so many different things. Although I did for the last physical issue, because they let me write one extra column that's going to be online only. It's like a bonus column in the in the November issue online. But the last issue, yes, I definitely wrote about EF Core, right? EF Core 3.0, because that just came out. Nice. But Man. yeah, I'm really, really, really sad about that because it really just it just when I, you know, it really lit a fire under me to have this real motivation to uh you know learn about new things. And people say, well, you know, write in your blog or, you know, blog more, or whatever. Um, although, you know, it's not quite the same, right? I mean, how many people are going to read the blog post? I'm not going to have an editor. Oh, I'm not think... going to get paid. <laughs> you know, little things like that. Do you think <laughs> blogs are on their way out popularity wise? I, I, I don't know. I mean, there are people who really still, you know, add so much value with their blogs. I mean, obviously, Scott Hanselman, right? I mean, yeah. I just can't believe how consistent he is. Right? I, I would argue that blogs went out of style and have come back in. Yeah. Right. That we had a period there where the mediums of the world sort of said, hey, let's be the YouTube of blogs and sort of hub them out. And that created its own set of problems now that we've sort of said, hey, you know what really works? The internet. Yeah. Yeah. You're talking about Facebook and things like that. And uh, yeah, all the other places you could post stuff, but I, I'm, right. I specifically look at medium.com is that sort yeah. of they yeah. were the ones who focused on centralizing blogs. 
And, uh, and in theory, it was supposed to make it easier to find stuff. But then they started putting their paywalls in place and, and their own impediments and their own editorial calendar and enough flow going through that you couldn't find things. Like it's, it's just like app stores, right? As soon as it becomes successful in any level, they're almost useless. So speaking of Entity Framework Core 3.0... The first exposure that I got to it was when I sat down to write um, a Blazor application um, a couple months ago, and uh, I I quick let me you know let me put it into uh, context for you. See what I did there? It's, he's funny. See what I did? Okay. It's right yeah. there. He's so, pretty funny. All right. No, it's not <laughs> funny. It's an but, overloaded word. That's for sure. But what I have to talk about here, when I when I want to tell you, is all about the the DB context because. The the whole architecture of a Blazor app is not only a spa, but it's a spa with state. And the state isn't like a session state that, you know, uh, you have to go get every time you get a request. There's This is server-side Blazor I'm talking about now. There's a, a SignalR connection that's maintained throughout the whole thing, and the client and server communicate through that connection. It's not like your standard... Um, you know, asynchronous call that calls an API that gets some stuff that comes back. Like this is literally more like a Windows application. And so I would program, you know, the first programming that I did around using EF Core with Blazor, I would keep a context open and I would be, you know, tracking all of these entities and things quickly went awry. And so I sent an email to my friend Julie, and she said, whoa, 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 whoa. What are you doing keeping these contexts around for so long? That's not a good idea. And, not, you know, not thinking that, okay, yes, it's an ASP.NET core application, but it's Blazor. And right, and it wasn't your fault. No, yeah, it's not, right. It's just how it worked. That's just how it works. So I quickly changed over the architecture to create a sort of a, a manager that has the, the methods to, to do what I want to do, but creates a DB context, does it, does the thing, and then closes it. And so I'm, I'm not, I don't have these tracked entities all over the place. Right. And uh, there's, there's not a whole lot of crosstalk and problems with asynchronous uh, access to the to these things, like all of those problems, just went away. But it meant a little more code. But I think it so. The really- the moral of the story is, if you're writing server side Blazor, thinking you're going to use Entity Framework, you got to think um, not like a, a a desktop application, right? You know, in the in the early days of Entity Framework, people ran into this problem all the time because they didn't understand the difference. They weren't seeing the difference between a stateful and stateless app. So right. going from Windows Forms to ASP.NET. And oh, we saw this all the time with people in, you know, putting the um you, you know, they've got all their code on the server side, right? Yeah. So the DB context is there. And they're like, well, let me just have one DB context. They didn't realize that DB context is going to now track every single piece of data from every single Request. user yeah uh you know uh, yeah um so that was a that was a big thing to try to make sure people understand and at least um with ASP.NET core 
you know, it's kind of that that uh, protection is is kind of built in when you build the services. Uh, and that was my first my first reaction when you asked me. I was like, well, ASP.NET Core, right? And, right. But it you, should be. I haven't used I haven't used Blazor at all, so I didn't get that it was doing that. And it's really interesting because it sounds similar to Breeze in a way. You remember Breeze? I sure. Blade put that. Yeah, out. sure. Word bells um, thing. Yeah, exactly. Um, however, Breeze had all there were there was so much knowledge of entity framework built into that so they took care of that for you blazer is not about entity framework it's just you know you're using it with there yeah and so, i know anyway, ward bell has a few job. blazers yeah. <laughs> oh, oh there we go again those puns today are we <laughs> <laughs> it's an orm in gold lemay <laughs> <laughs> Oh, no. Sorry, Ward. We love you. I haven't seen him in so long because, you know, he's like Mr. Angular now. Or maybe he's Mr. Retired. I don't know. No, so, no. He'll be, he's, he'll he's be old at the like Dev me. show. You're just not going to be there. Uh, so yeah. I'm going oh, through the, I know. I'm sorry. So I'm going through the new features in, in Core 3.0 EF, and uh, it looks like they did a lot of really cool optimizations where they were doing multiple SQL queries on the on the back end. Now they're limiting it to they're getting it all in one. Um, mm-hmm. They're making some optimizations that uh, based on the features of C sharp eight, like uh, being able to do asynchronous streams and stuff like that. It it just seems to keep getting better and better. Uh, is that is that your overall assessment of Core three. Yeah, EF Core three. Actually, new feature list is really short. You could probably yep. count it in one hand. Yeah. I think I rattled off about two of six. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but what the focus of this version is was and I really like the way Diego Vega expressed it. He said they think of it as a foundational release. Hmm. They did an enormous amount of work to just tighten things up, make things work better, get rid, you know, uh, fix in kind of inherent problems um, that had been, you know, in there since kind of the beginning of EF Core, and they had built on top of them and realized that, you know, just all the things that were creating pain, yeah, they tried to make it go away. So. You'll see again a really, really short list of new features, but they also what what they did miss was breaking changes. A lot of them. It, it was like, all right, as long as we're gonna do it, let's just take, let's do as much as we can, right? Let people know there's breaking changes they need to pay attention to, get their attention, and let's just do as much as we can while they're focused on the fact that, you know, it's like, okay, we have to deal with the breaking changes instead of having like one or two, because they've always tried to avoid that right over the iterations of entity framework. Well, it seems like we're once again in this middle period between, you know, what, what we have now and the, the grand unification of .NET 5, right? Where everything will come together 
And I guess this is probably the best time to make these. Yeah, I you know. I agree. I've and I've made I've tried to make sure people hear me saying that I think it was a good thing to do. You know, as long as they were doing they had to break a couple of big things, just go, you know, there's I mean, there are a lot. Um, but yeah, just getting it ready. And also I love the fact that it helps us see EF course still has a long life ahead of it. Yeah. Like they're yeah, I notice in the list of new features they've got C sharp eight support. Right. Yeah, and that was just a you know, a couple of things that um like the streaming, the async streaming and things. So yeah. they could do that. Um, and they honor being able to have nullable or non-nullable reference types too in, in the same, you know, so you can have those in your classes the way you're allowed to with C sharp, but EF core will actually recognize that and map based on that. But if you're using C sharp eight, that means your standard 2.1, right? Yeah. Okay. Yes. Uh, so EF core three. This is so hard to even like saying all this because we're throwing all the numbers around and they're not the same numbers. Yeah. Yeah. But, <laughs> but right. you know, EF core three is dependent on net standard 2.1. Right. Just, just net like C sharp eight is. Right. Along with C sharp eight and ASP.NET core three and .NET core three. Right. They're all sitting on top of net standard 2.1. Yeah, which means that they're core only, not regular framework. Yeah. So that is the big thing, right? Net Mm -hmm. standard 2.1 doesn't doesn't include .NET framework. And it never they're like it will never support any version of .NET framework. Yeah. Well, that's the same thing that happened with C sharp eight. Yeah. And that's that. Yeah, it's the same with C sharp eight. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, new development, right? Make creating new things. It makes sense to use the new stuff. But then there's yeah. the whole question about upgrading and and updating. Or, well, and, and I'm looking in the notes under breaking changes, and it says point blank: if you uh, if you have to stick with regular framework, then stick with core two point two. Right, but also um, the surface of that of what we can do on .NET Core 3 that you know that we can't do on .NET Framework that's actually grown because mm. they brought Windows and WPF up to yeah. .NET Core 3 so you can actually use those with new you know new new ones new versions of those things and in the future as we were talking about before you know next year next November sometime if we stay on track um, there isn't going to be a core. It's just going to be .NET. So there won't be any compatibility issues. Or will there? I don't know how we'll know, right? It'll depend on how this unification actually happens. Right. So another really interesting thing that came along for this ride, the same as Windows Forms did and WPF did, EF Entity Framework, not core, Entity Framework 6.3, so the next mm-hmm. kind of iteration of EF6, is now .NET 3 compatible. Nice. Cross-platform. I literally, like, in OSX, on my MacBook, in Visual Studio Code, I built a little sample app using Entity Framework 6.3. I, I couldn't I couldn't believe it. <laughs> 
That's pretty cool. Just, to me, that was the kind of the ultimate expression of it's really sitting on .NET Core now, right? It's cross-platform. Wow. Why do they still have both if they'll both run in Core and they'll both run on, on standard framework? For those people who are still on .NET 4.6, .NET right. 4.7, .NET 4, you know, below that. So people don't have to change. Right. And and 6.3 does is cross-compiled. So it does, you can use it in .NET Core or .NET Framework. Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. Don't, yeah. It's not, you know, it doesn't get involved in all of that net standard 2.1, 2.0 confusion. Blah. Hmm. I, I remember, when was I at, the last time I was at the MVP Summit, so not this year, but last, you know, so 20, 2018, and they were talking for the first time about how they were going to move forward and, you know, all the different ways they thought about moving forward and versioning mm. and that their decision was to do all this crazy stuff with the numbers. And the person to deliver that message was the person I trusted most to make that decision, which was Kathleen Dollard. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Right. I trust her to choose the right path and not get pushed around. Yeah. And to not hold back either. Like she's going to tell you why they made the decision. Like she doesn't step into anything lightly ever. True. No. Not even lunch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Ask me how well, I she's know. She's lived at my house before. So, you know, I could confirm that. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I mean, these are hard decisions trying to line all this stuff up and figure out what pieces you're going to support and how you're going to do it. I, I, I have appreciation for it. These are not easy choices. And and we are in this gap. Well, I also wonder, like, if I'm looking at Core 3, EF Core 3, and knowing that .NET Core 3 just shipped as well and is about to have a 3.1, I think I'm kind of going to hang on for an EF Core 3.1, presuming there is one, right? Oh, yeah. That's actually the preview is already out. So that's going to yeah. come out with .NET Core 3.1. Oh, okay. And and I'm in the middle of working on the, you know, getting started with Entity Framework Core 3 course for Pluralsight. And I'm like, should I just, you know, I don't want to do it using preview bits, right? I don't right. want to show people that I'm, you know, with the NuGet packages and everything that is preview. I want them to see the real thing. Mm. But, 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 you know, like maybe a month after this comes out, 3.1 is going to come out and they're going to look yeah. at, you know, and I'm. Oh, do I have to change it also? But, I'm trying to and I and I bring that up because that. Core Core three one is going to be one of the long term support additions of right. .NET Core. Right. Like if if you care a lot about version numbers, if this constant changing from version to version bugs you and you'd rather settle, you know, I want to pick something and go with it for a few years. Core three one is the one you want. Hmm. Right, and it's going to be released soon anyway. Yeah, it's, right? it's so by the time If and, you're working on it now, by the time you're ready to go to production, it'll probably be out. Well, guys, hold that thought for just a minute while we take a moment for this very important message. Hey, Carl and Richard here. We'd like to tell you all about the upcoming conferences NDC is hosting all around the world. NDC London will be January 27th through the 31st. Go to ndc-london.com to register. We're going to be recording some episodes there. Come see us in the fishbowl. NDC Security Oslo is January 22nd through the 24th. 
Early bird discount for NDC Security Oslo is December 2nd. Go to ndc-security.com to register. And check out the full lineup of conferences at ndcconferences.com. Come join Richard and me at Dev Intersection, November 18th through the 21st at the MGM Grand in Las Vegas. Pre-con workshops are November 17th and 18th, and post-cons are November 22nd. Speakers you've heard on .NET Rocks include Scott Guthrie, Scott Hunter, Scott Hanselman, Kathleen Dollard, Jeff Fritz, Kim Tripp, Paul Randall, Dan Wallin, John Papa, Marcus Eggert, Michelle LaRue Bustamante, and more. I'll be doing a deep dive session on server-side Blazor, and Richard will be doing his History of .NET talk, and we'll both be hosting the closing session. Get a discount when you register with the code D-O-T-N-E-T-R-O-C-K-S. Go to devint.netrocks.com right now to claim your discount. And we're back. It's Carl Franklin. That's Richard Camel. And that's Julie Lerman. We're talking EF uh, Core 3.0, Entity Framework, of course. And... Um, Looks like the the list of breaking changes is longer than the list of new features, <laughs> and it literally is. Um, there's yeah. six breaking changes that they rate as high impact. There's probably one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. There's eleven breaking changes that are medium, and the rest are low. Um, and uh, well, you know, we're in this transitional period, as as you guys yeah. were were saying, and we were talking about. And uh, hopefully, there's a, a light at the end of the tunnel, but it doesn't happen uh, without refactoring and and rebuilding existing code. And this, I think, it's really really important for people to look at that list. Mm-hmm. read the whole list mm-hmm. and then you know but they've done such an amazing job at this because they're so transparent so for each one of these breaking changes they then explain how it used to work how it works now why they made it mm-hmm. and then what you know then they for each one of these they also have a section called mitigations right, right. so what you should do uh, if you don't if you don't want to suffer from this, you know, there's a setting here that will go back, you know, take this particular thing back to the old behavior or, or you know, how to how to get around the problems that will be created. So very, very transparent and useful information. Uh, but I still think it's really important for people to be a be aware of this, whether you're looking at updating something from 2.0 or you're writing something new. If you right. are still used to the way EF Core and EF Core 2 work and you expect those same behaviors, you need to be aware of what these breaking changes are. And mm-hmm. I know there will be so many people that are like, oh, kill me, breaking changes. How can you do this to me? But <laughs> again, you know, this is a this is a really critical transition and they're they're setting the stage for entity framework core to be able to be around for a while i i really love the one uh, entity framework core is no longer part of the asp.net core shared framework because it oh, sounds yeah. terrible right I mean, do, don't but you think it, it sounds it bad means- and it's really not right so there's a couple a couple of things that that means uh if you're doing an ASP.NET Core, uh, if you're building an ASP.NET Core project, mm-hmm. you just have to explicitly reference the you know the provider you want 
in the right. project. It's not all there. And, and again, it's, um, there's a couple of reasons for that. I mean, it's, it's nice if you think, well, you know, it's installing all this other stuff that I don't want, uh, you know, excess stuff just in case, which was kind of what we were trying to get away with, away right. from with .NET Core. So, um, yeah, on your development machine, yes, it's going to pull down all those packages. But when you when you go and publish a .NET Core app, it only publishes the packages that you're actually using anyway, not right. you know, the references that you're actually using. But to the me, the big strength of the separation was that you now can update ASP.NET Core separately from EF Core. Like if you need a new update of ASP.NET Core, say there's a security issue, it's not going to do anything to your EF Core installation. That's one. But another yeah. was just a, a small usability thing. Or, or, you know, from the perspective of somebody like me who's creating content, which is if you're creating a, a, just a straight.NET core, not ASP.NET core, right? And you're you have to select the NuGet packages you want, you have to add EF core. But with ASP.NET core, oh, it's already there. Right. right? So the 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 mindset, like they've it gives a consistency just if you're using EF core and you want it in your package, uh, you want it in your project, you know, reference the package. That's all. And then right. the other is that um, the command line tool isn't, is independent of the .NET core SDK. Mm -hmm. So it used to be, it. Uh, well, it used to be independent, used to be separate. Then it was part of .NET core. So you don't have to worry the SDK. So it was just always there, but they've actually split it out again. So they can version independently of the .NET core SDK. So they can right. update as needed. Same thing. Julie, so just a little thing. Do we have less required attribution now in EF core if you're doing code first? And what I mean by that is it seems like there's a whole bunch of things that just sort of work by default that don't require attributes. Oh, yeah. I had to un I had to think about what you were saying there because I think you're talking about using the data annotations yeah. to right. uh, kind of customize the configuration. Like I do, don't need I don't to specify my ID as a primary key. Right. It just kind of happens, right? right? So I personally, I never use the data annotations. I always use the Fluent API to do that. Yeah. Just that doesn't answer your question, um, which I'll get to in a minute, but I just want to point that out. I actually did a little aside in my course while I was working on it because I'm, I'm not going to spend time showing the data annotations. If people want to learn them, they can easily find them in, uh, in the documentation. So I'm not going to like do everything twice. Um, for me personally, the reason I prefer the Fluent API, there are two. One is the Fluent API covers a lot more than the data annotations. The data annotations can only express a subset of the configurations you want to do. So then I'm doing half and half. Right. Um, the other is that, you know, me with my DD domain driven design brain, DDD, um, I don't want to put rules about entity framework, which is how my data gets persisted into my business logic. Doesn't make sense to me to do that. So that's why I was like, what is he talking about? Yeah. So, <laughs> yep. so getting back to, I, I, I think what your the point of your question is, 
is um, the convention, the defaults of how Entity Framework maps to the database a little, does it cover more things? So there's less things that you have to exactly. explicitly do. Is it a bit um, It depends on where you're coming from. So for me, as somebody who's doing domain-driven design um, and, you know, uh, using kind of domain-driven design patterns in my classes and hoping that Entity Framework will take care of the mapping for me so I don't have to create a separate data model for, for doing that. Um, within the 2.1 lifetime, like 2.1, 2.2, 2.3, it introduced a lot of things that took care of those uh, mappings for me. There's a lot more mappings that are handled by convention. Um, in 3.0, there weren't really, there's a, there was just a couple of little things that got, uh, got just fixed. They're just a little a little better, like, um, well, there was one, one that for me, again, DDD, it was like, oh, this is terrible. Um, in domain-driven design, an important concept is value objects. So these are classes that don't have their own identity. So, you know, it's just like a, a string, right? A string is a value object. So you have your own class that's a value object. And EF Core knew how to map them, but there was a couple of uh, use cases, critical use cases for how we how it's how you can use or should be using value objects that it didn't handle well, right? And so it handles those better now. So you know that's a that's better mapping. But overall, um, I think for the changes you have to configurations you have to do to uh, cover anomalies that you know that don't follow convention. I don't think there's a lot in EF Core 3 that's changed along those lines. Yeah. I mean, I don't have as much experience with previous versions of EF. So mm -hmm. so that's why, it, you know, just looking at a lot of the samples and stuff, I guess the difference is, is that they were using the Fluent API to map, you know, the one-to-many relationships and the keys and the foreign keys and, and all that stuff are, are, are done with the Fluent API. Whereas there's a lot of demos, there's a lot of sample code out there that doesn't use that, you know, uses the data annotations. Right. So I don't, I don't, there's not a lot, like for, for, from previous versions to EF Core 3, I don't think the data annotations changed much. I know there was a couple more things that data annotations provided um, along the way of 2.0, like again, with the query types. So not the, uh, the query types, the um, value objects. So Entity Framework does not say, oh, we support value objects. What they have is something called owned entities. And that allows us to support value objects. So the owned entities, the way you would map owned entities, originally you could only do it in the Fluent API, but then we got some data annotations for them. So, but that was, I think that came in like is that like if you have a one to one relationship, the the child element goes right into the owner table. Mm -hmm. Oh, kind of right. If you want that, so uh, just backing up a little bit with EF Core two, it actually um, made mapping one to one relationships a lot easier. So it covered cover more use cases, like, you know, like what more people would expect, right? 
So, uh, so it did that naturally because normally we had to, you had, there was these in EF, there's these really weird rules about how to get one-to-one work to work. It just wouldn't do it on its own. So you had to do mappings and you had right. to have a, uh, the, the primary key is, is the foreign key. So they made that a lot simpler in one point in, in, uh, EF core, but but the default is that the dependent in the relationship of the one-to-one, so like the parent, right? And the child. So mm-hmm. the child is the dependent usually, <laughs> unless these days when sometimes a parent has to move in with a child, but I think <laughs> the millennials that are all moving in with their parents. I, I love where you're thing. So I can't say. I love your brain, Julie. Well, I just always found it was funny to use that the, the term. I mean, it makes sense. Those terms, you know, the the dependent. Parent child. What if yeah. your dependent's a dog? And the prince, principal and dependent, parent, child. Uh, at least we're, we're getting away from master slave now. So that's good. Yeah, that's um, something. We're, yeah. we're waiting for the giant puppy object. Oh, oh, he's been he's been in uh, some of my data samples for sure. Um, <laughs> anyway, so where was I? So by default, the dependent gets stored in it uh, mapped, right? It gets stored in its own table, right? Right. But you can overwrite that behavior with an annotation or with a fluent API to say, no, I actually want those col- I want those columns, the properties of that dependent, to just be columns in the same table right that's like owned principal. or something like right. that yeah but well that's that's not uh, that's different oh owned you, i thought explained? owned means it is in the table or it's not yeah it does it actually does go in it, yeah because so that's a one-to-one relationship right where it feels like it's it's not the same as owned because that dependent in a one-to-one relationship, the dependent still has its own primary key. Oh, right. It can be tracked right. independently of the principal. Whereas an owned entity, it it you it's not can't ever live by itself. Right. Okay. Right. But it makes sense to have. There's a point where it makes sense to have your own class for that because you know you've got this common set of properties that you're using a lot or common sure. set of behaviors that you know that are you want to repeat and you don't you, you don't want to have to repeat them every single time as properties so you just encapsulate that in the in an own type okay right? anyway yeah so a couple another there's a couple other interesting things to talk about with ef core three okay going back to our conversation about um, normalizing data and relational databases and everything, which is mm-hmm. that EF Core 3 now has a provider for Cosmos DB. Cosmos yeah, DB, awesome. a document database, not relational data. And ORM, where the R stands for relational. Mm-hmm. Right? <laughs> but also, to a you know, geographically distributed data store in the cloud. Like There you go. Yes, stinky exactly. fast. Um, so... They actually started working on this way back in the beginning, the early work they were doing on EF Core, before EF Core was even called EF Core, when they were still calling it EF7. Document DB didn't exist yet, right? right? They didn't exist. So, but we had Azure Table Storage, which was the NoSQL right key value store on, on Azure. So they did a proof of concept and I I 
you know, wrote an article about it, played with it, experiment. It was really cool. Uh, but the big question everybody asked was, why do you need to use an ORM for a non-relational database? Like, mm. that's just stupid. It's a waste, right? Like, because you don't, you're not solving the, the same problems. But I had found something really interesting and it it's still the same with a new with a new provider with that's you know evolved to cosmos so by the way that original provider it just disappeared right it was a proof of concept so as uh document db came out and then it transitioned to cosmos db then they ended up creating the provider there so the interesting thing though about why an orm for a non-relational database is i don't have either of you ever used like the net api for interacting with cosmos db no N- uh no there's there's so much setup to do you have to define oh, yeah. and it's not just like you know var uh, you have to define the account. You have to define the database. You have oh, to yes. define the collection. But that's not just yes. like saying, "Here's the connection string," you know, for the account. Here's the database name, and here's the collection. That would be easy, right? Right. You had to actually create classes to represent each of them and instantiate them, and and make the you know have them make the connections. There was so much setup to do. That it was like, oh my, you know, like it was really distracting. Um, so if you've never, you know, if you haven't used those things before, but you're familiar with Entity Framework, right? It's like, I already know right. how to use Entity Framework. I just want to do some, you know, I just want to work, interact with my Cosmos database. It makes so much sense because it takes care of all of that for you. Right. Nice. Right. You don't have to, it, you, you literally, just use it exactly the same as you would if you were using a SQL Server database, and it but then you connect a new connection string, your credentials for for Cosmos. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And then and um, it'll even create a database for you if nice. you need to. If, and that's if a feature of VF to. doing that. Yes. So what's important about that is like because people are like but. You know, Cosmos DB, it's so complicated. There's so much to set up. And, you know, why would I want Entity Framework to make all those decisions? Entity Framework will create the database, right? And the collection. It yeah, won't, right. Uh oh. Then words, we've, we use a new word, not collection anymore. <laughs> uh, oh, well. Um, but the account already has to exist. And the account is where you make all the hard decisions about- mm, Right, the, um, the geographical distribution stuff, and, that kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. And and the, the really important thing of choosing your, um, which API you want to use, like if you're going to use SQL or you're going to use uh, Mongo, right? Which which one of the APIs that that, sure. that Cosmos DB, everything inside of that account is going to use. So for- uh, for Entity Framework, it does use the SQL API, so you yeah, do that have makes to sense. Create it right. in advance, so it won't create I, that for you. That has to pre-exist. I had worked with a group that was using MongoDB and switched to Cosmos DB literally by changing the connection string. Yep, because hmm. they're using I, the Mongo APIs. Yeah, that was spooky. <laughs> right, <laughs> but Just easy. Give somebody else your credit card. <laughs> so you know, I'd never used Mongo before. This was. This was such uh, a great example of the beauty of my data points column. 
Um, I've never used Mongo. I've kind of never had a need to, and you know, there's always a million things to learn. So I just hadn't gone down that path, but I was, I was talking to Burke Holland on that, uh, that funny, um, show he does called five things. And one of the things we were talking about, we were talking about data related things and we're talking about the Azure extension, the Cosmos DB extension for visual studio code. Right. So as long as you're logged in, like right in Visual Studio Code, you can uh, connect to your account and see the databases, see the collection and see the data and actually update, you know, edit data. It's 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 really, really cool to be able to do that. And he said, oh, you can also look at MongoDB databases. Right. Not a Cosmos, not just a Cosmos DB database that is using the Mongo API, but because uh, the extension knows how to talk to MongoDB API. You can just talk to regular old MongoDB databases. So I was like, oh, that's cool. There's an excuse for me to like get my hands dirty a little bit with MongoDB. So I installed Mm -hmm. MongoDB, you know, the the client side version of it um, on my computer and learned a little bit about how to work with it. And, you know, and then just did all that, right? I don't know if I would have really given my, myself an excuse to chase that down. That was kind of fun. Cool. Yeah. That's that was the best part about those, those tasks is diving deep on those things. Right. Right. Cause who's got time. Yeah. Right. Unless, so I'm like, unless you've hey, made it your job. Get, right. Right. Get getting paid a little bit for, for doing this column. So, you know, they get it. They always got a big bang for their buck. I can tell you, because <laughs> that was fun. So, what other? I think you know whether you've used Entity Framework before or not. I think just that ability, that that idea of connecting to Cosmos DB is pretty cool. And you know, when there's only six new features, right? So that's that's one of the big ones. For people coming from EF6, another one of the new features in EF Core 3 is really important. It is that they uh, they support the interceptors again. So we had interceptors right. in EF6 where you could intercept um, activity between your code and the database. So uh, you know, it's about to execute a command. Well, we can, with an interceptor, you can stop there, look at the command, change it, log it, do whatever you want to it. So there was tons of those interceptors where you could tap into the pipeline. And they finally brought those into EF Core 3, and they basically work the same as um, the, whole, the whole path to using those is similar to EF6. Mm-hmm. But I think that'll make a lot of people happy. And that's typically used, not necessarily, is it used for diagnostics usually? Or, I mean, would you ever change something that's en route to a database that way? Uh, first, I want to answer the first question. There's actually great diagnostics that you can tap into. Like the .NET Core has all of that diagnostics API. And yeah. EF Core leverages that. So you can, um, you can, do get all kinds of logging from EF Core as well in this, you know, targeting the same destinations you can do with ASP.NET Core because it's using the whole same logic and API anyway. So then right. the next question is who would do that? Like change a command going, you know, a, right. Why com- would, a update the- command or a change data on the way back. Well, there's, there's um, all 
kinds of reasons. I guess if you talk to a DBA, so, you know, turn, turn to your left and look at Richard. Yeah. Say, Wait. <laughs> Depends on, are you facing east or north or south or west? Which way are you going to turn? <laughs> but imagine you've got a multi-tenant database, right? You can actually um, affect queries and, and add uh, credentials and things like that. Um, in there, you can intercept it and make sure things are going in the right direction. So things things like that, or or um, have your way with data as it's coming back through the pipeline. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's not for the faint of heart. This is using that expression "have your way." That doesn't like break coc or anything, does it? <laughs> I think I think you're okay. <laughs> okay. It, it's your way, whatever it may be. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you control that data, hopefully. So, Julie, what's next for you? What are you working on besides your plural site course? The plural site course. Um, oh, I'm well. I wonder if I'm going to see you. No, I'm not going to see you. No, no. Because I'm um, off to Lithuania. I thought it was time to go to build stuff. So I'm going to build stuff. I'm really looking forward to that. I'm going to give a keynote and do a talk on. Um, ASP.NET Core, EF Core, and Docker, like one one nice. talk. Cool. Yeah. So yeah, that that's another fun, th- you know, fun thing for me. Like for a lot of people, they wouldn't go, "Oh, Docker's fun." Like Docker's like solving my business problems. It's really yeah. important. I'm like, oh, it's fun. <laughs> <laughs> uh, because well, my uh, I'm just getting people from their like, what is Docker? I don't know. Everybody's talking about it to going, oh, okay, got it. Like right. one one talk I've been doing, this is not what I'm doing in Lithuania, but uh, I, I do have a talk called "Getting to Aha with Docker." Right, it's just <laughs> nice. cool. for people for people like me. And then I'm going to uh, be in Copenhagen for Go to after that. And then I I well, I, just a couple of days ago, I was able to say I literally have no conferences, no travel on my schedule for 2020, but that already changed. Huh. I wasn't, I wasn't trying to get, uh, you know, like, oh, it's so sad. I was like, oh, yay, I'm going to stay home. It'll be great. Like, oh, no. Okay. So, yeah. So, I don't know. I got those conferences, and then after that, I'm looking forward to uh, skiing. <laughs> oh, very <laughs> good. <laughs> well, Julie, but thanks anyways, very much. It's been uh, enlightening. And always fun. Thank Absolutely. you for ride. inviting me on. You're welcome. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a-